Well, hey there. How's it going? It, it's been it's been a minute. It has admittedly been a minute. I am your host, Casey Drotter. Welcome to the CLE Sports Talk Podcast. I I told you on my last show back in September that it would be it was going to become a little bit difficult to maintain the same weekly consistency of the show. So I, I didn't lie. Life just happened to get a little busier than anticipated. I'm in grad school now at Northwestern. Big Ten West champs by default. What? I went to Dayton. Half the student body thinks the football field near campus is a local park. So yeah, go Cats. Also, caught COVID. Turns out it's pretty real. Regardless of what your crazy uncle says on Facebook, no, it's not a hoax. It sucks. Please don't catch it. Anywho, we've got a nice little breather before things ramp up again on my side, which means I get to yell at the wall with a microphone nearby for old time's sake. So get pumped. All right. Well, like I said, it has been a minute when we last left off. The Browns, well, they got quite obliterated by the Ravens. It was ugly. It was lopsided. It was, and I said it at the time, no indication of what the season was going to look like from there on out. And, uh, yeah, that appears to have been the proper assessment. Because in the time since, the Browns have ho-hum won nine of their next 11 games, including, stunningly, this past Sunday's bout against a Titans team I and many others thought would be a matchup nightmare for Cleveland. Honestly, on paper... This was not a game I could look at and confidently pick the Browns. The defense isn't exactly rock solid, and it was going up against Derrick Henry, a human mountain. Really didn't think I was making a leap last week when saying the Titans running back was just going to do unspeakable things to Cleveland's defense. And let's just address the elephant in the room. The Browns have not played well against good teams this year. Stomped by Baltimore, stomped by Pittsburgh, slogged around aimlessly against Vegas. They can beat a bad team, sure, and we'll we'll talk about that more later. But they've shown minimal ability to hang with the big boys of the league. So again, I did not think this would be a pleasant viewing experience. Hell, I even tweeted before the game, you know, it's okay if they lose to Tennessee. That wouldn't make the Browns suddenly a bad team. And boy, did that tweet age poorly. Mercy. And yes, the final score, 41-35 to Browns, does indicate the game got close. It did, but it didn't really. Because when the Browns entered halftime up 38-7, to I think we all kind of called game at that point. 38 to 7. My goodness. And let's just start with the most important call out Baker freaking Mayfield. I've had a lot to say about this subject, but again, super busy. So, fair warning, I have a lot of pent up energy coming in this show. Starting with everyone's favorite pinata, Baker Mayfield. You see, after a, yes, it's true, terrible game against the Pittsburgh Steelers in week six. Many Cleveland supporters had loudly decided Baker is trash. He's a bum. He's a 
bust. He'll never be a franchise quarterback. We have seen everything we need to see. Close the book on him. And the next week, when he threw for almost 300 yards and five touchdowns, including a last-second game winner, oh, well, it was only the Bengals. He's still terrible. That's the gist when it comes to a lot of people's evals on this guy. If he has a bad throw, see, I told you he's garbage. If he has a good throw, yeah, but did you see the bad throw? Now, my take from the beginning of this season has been we still don't know enough about him to conclusively decide whether or not Baker Mayfield is the guy. That, to some, is a scalding hot take, But it's true. Three offensive schemes and four head coaches in three seasons. Last year, he was put behind a two-ply offensive line, while the guy calling his plays very clearly had no idea what he was doing. Believe it or not, you're going to run into some lasting damage after that. Which is why, even during his bad games, I continued to insist that no, a bad Baker Mayfield game does not prove He's an awful quarterback. People of the court, please see Exhibit A. 290 yards, four touchdowns in the first half. Keep in mind, no other quarterback in the entire NFL has thrown four touchdown passes in a single half this year. Mayfield has now done it twice. The first Browns quarterback to throw four touchdowns in the first half since Otto Graham. Otto freaking Graham! He was good, not sure if you recall. In this game, Baker was sharp, he was spreading the ball around, he threw a touchdown to an offensive lineman. He was going through his reads, he was sure of himself in the pocket. Baker Mayfield played one of the league's best teams and freaking slung it. This is the Browns team that many people believed that the only way it could hang with Tennessee, the only way it could consistently win, period, was keeping the ball on the ground and let just, just let Baker manage it. And at the end of the day, Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt only gave Cleveland 113 rushing yards. I'm not dumping on them, just pointing out that in a game where the Browns had 458 total yards, Baker Mayfield was responsible for 345 of them. Yeah, he had a run and a reception, too. Now, I can't sit here and tell you, see, he's the man after a great game, and then get mad at people for deciding he's pure trash after a bad one. That's a bit hypocritical. But I can say, again, do not write him off because he has one bad game. Who the hell am I kidding? He's going to miss Jarvis Landry on a wide-open pass next week, and everyone's just going to yell, GARBAGE! He's the worst! Oh, you this fan base, I swear to God. Other notes, again, Nick Chubb didn't blow the game open. He did give Cleveland 80 very needed yards and a touchdown. Miles Garrett, fresh off beating COVID himself, he logged a sack and a tackle for loss. Side note, Miles Garrett looks like he was carved from a tree trunk, and he said COVID kicked his ass. But sure, out of shape Ray from Westlake, I'm sure the virus is just a hoax and it doesn't really have an impact on anyone. And again, the second half of this game, not great. I and many other Browns fans, as soon as the Titans scored to make it 38-13, thought, ah, crap. 25-point lead, doesn't matter. You can't tell a Cleveland fan not to be pessimistic. Optimism is not the language of our people. 
that the game only ended on a six-point advantage again. Second half was mostly garbage time, so you can't make too much of it. Still, four quarters, guys. Just that's how that's how long a regulation game is. So things to keep in mind. Also, Kevin Stefanski, congrats to you. You've now won just as many games in your first year as head coach as Hugh Jackson and Freddie Kitchens won in their four years coaching combined. God. Brown stats, even when they're positive, they make you sad. Honestly, though, anytime Stefanski wins, I just can't help but look back and recall all of the are you kidding me tweets people published when Cleveland had the gall to not let Josh McDaniels come in and blow everything up. The Browns were bashed in Cleveland and outside it for hiring an analytics-focused coach simply because <gasps> he shared the same vision as the front office? Nerds! They don't know football! And almost one year later, the Browns are six games above 500. Six! The Browns have a chance to clinch a playoff spot. The Browns are now two games back from winning the AFC North. The Browns are good. Crazy what happens when you don't force a shotgun marriage between your coach and GM. Next week, big Monday night bout against the Ravens. Man, oh man, they better be ready for this one. Never mind the Monday night primetime lights. This is a Baltimore team that kicked your ass in week one. And a win over the Ravens might just end their season. So that, God, that'd be swell. And a win over the Ravens might extend Cleveland's into January. So, you know, no pressure. We'll talk about the Browns a little bit more later in the show. I've just got a lot of things to yell about. Again, about a good team. But no, we can't have nice things. But now we got to talk basketball because the Cavs are on their way back. Hooray-ish. I, honestly, I'm sorry. I just sometimes forget the Cavs are a thing. And look, that's not a slight against them. More just an acknowledgement that, hey, this team hasn't played a basketball game in nine freaking months. But the NBA is getting its new season underway. Sands bubble because all the cool kids are doing it. Cavs start their preseason on December 12th against the Pacers. And then the actual season kicks off with a December 23rd game against Charlotte. And that will be the first time we've seen Cleveland play a competitive regular season basketball game since a March 10th loss to the Bulls. Holy moly, that, that is just a very long time off the court. Beyond just their general insistence that, yep, we're here, the Cavs getting back into the swing of things also gives them a chance to show off their brand new rookie, Obi. Nope, that... No, that didn't happen. Now, look, I know that the Cavs need defensive help. I know that the great, immortal Obi Toppin would not have provided defensive help. In fact, right now, I think he'd probably make the defense a little worse. I can be a big man and admit that. With that said, I was a little sad to not see the Cavs draft a player who shares the same alma mater as I do. I didn't go to Kansas. Seeing a Dayton player go top 10, hell, seeing one get drafted, a little rare. So that there was a chance for that to both happen and have that player taken 
by Cleveland. Yes, yes, my bias was showing when it came to what scenario I was rooting for. I understood the flaws. I understood the concerns with the fact that he's already 22 and players who get drafted at that age aren't known for much more beyond the age at which they were drafted. So, when the Cavs actually picked Isaac Okoro out of Auburn, I wasn't mad once I took my Dayton-colored glasses off and realized that a team which couldn't guard a folding chair last year drafted the best defensive player coming out of college. It's a good move! Hell, it's a great move! It's seeing a need and addressing it with the best possible option. I get it. And right now, my sadness about Obi not heading to Cleveland has been tabled for the sadness I feel that he landed with the Knicks. That sucks. Anyway, Okoro, I love the pick. I really do. I love how good he is defensively. I love that if he's not starting at wing right away, he will be by the season's halfway point at the latest. I love that when the Cavs met with him, he worked out for them, they went to dinner, and then he just said, F it, I'm going back to the gym for another workout. I swear, we're going to hear stories about how he and Colin Sexton are going at each other one-on-one till 5am on a daily basis. Adding more gym rats to this team, not a bad thing. Now, I'm not crazy when I hear he needs to work on his jump shot, especially when it's associated with a team's first-round draft pick. Okoro, for as great as he is defensively, Got a little gun-shy on offense. Passed up a lot of open shots at Auburn. He had the fifth highest two-point field goal percentage in the SEC last season at 60.7%. But a lot of that was cuts and dunks. His overall shooting percentage was 51.4. His three-point shooting percentage was 28.6. So not great. But that doesn't mean it can't be fixed. Colin Sexton's overall shooting percentage in college was 44, up to 47% last year. He's no sharpshooter, but he too was someone who scored a lot of his points the same way Okoro did on drives to the net. Yet last season, Sexton's shooting percentages from 10 to 16 feet out and 16 to 22 feet out each improved year over year. So it's a very numbers-driven way of saying Just because Okoro doesn't have a reliable jump shot now doesn't mean he's carrying that burden for his entire NBA career. We know the Cavs will work on it, just like they did with Sexton, and we know Okoro has the work ethic to improve it, just like Sexton did. So yes, I really do like this pick. Just please give him time. I'm talking to Cavs fans, not the Cavs. I know they will, but the fans... After seeing them toss Colin Sexton into the trash can three months into his rookie season, can we not do that again? If a player has a key area of his game that needs work, it won't automatically fix itself the second he hits an NBA court. That's just not how it works. And that won't be what happens with Okoro, especially considering he has literally one month between being drafted by Cleveland and playing for Cleveland. Anywho, I'll get more into the Cavs over the next couple weeks, what I'm hoping to see, what I expect to see. Cliff Notes version, Colin Sexton showing more growth, Darius Garland throwing last year in the rear view and becoming a more confident shooter, Andre Drummond fetching a decent return at the trade deadline, and Kevin Love once again spending his entire season paying rent at the rumor mill. Also, fare thee well, Tristan Thompson. The longest tenured Cavalier is now off to Boston. Not super shocked. I talked about it back in September. Even though a few Cavs players campaigned for Cleveland to re-sign Thompson, I just, 
I didn't see it happening. There's no cap space. Thanks in part to both Drummond and Love's salaries. I would have been shocked if Tr- Tristan Thompson re-signed with the Cavs. So the news of him leaving, to me, it just felt inevitable. I do look forward to his return to Cleveland for the Jersey retirement. That should 100% happen. And I mean that for like all five starters from the championship team. Even Kyrie. Fight me. It's, ha- it's got to happen and you know it. All right, moving on. Let's talk baseball. Yeah, I know you don't want to either. Look. We've been dreading this winter. We've all been dreading it. Hell, we were dreading it before a pandemic damn near destroyed any possibility of the Indians spending money. This winter, as you know, is when the Francisco Lindor about to get traded meter is hitting a new high. I know there may be some optimists still out there, but it's... it's, We're... Look, I'd be quite surprised if Lindor was playing in Cleveland come opening day. Unless, of course... The tribe trades him to Detroit, and we, we do see Lindor in Cleveland on opening day, because that's, that's who they host when the season starts in the first series of the year. Obviously not the way you'd want this to work out, but I digress. Before we talk Lindor, let's talk about everyone else who's now gone. Brad Hand, Carlos Santana, and Domingo Santana, options all declined. If you were surprised by this news, I don't know what to tell you. I've personally been preparing for these moves since as soon as the season started. Cleveland was not picking up Carlos Santana's $17.5 million option. They just weren't. They weren't before the season, and an almost 200-point drop in year-over-year slugging percentage certainly didn't convince Cleveland that was a bad idea. Brad Hand, look, I mentioned from the get-go that the plan for this season seemed quite clear. Make sure you know you can trust James Karinczak in the role of closer so that passing on Brad Hand's $10 million option was easier to swallow. Domingo Santana, anybody who held out hope that Cleveland would pick up a $5 million option for the outfielder they DFA'd in early September, that's on you. I I don't know what to tell you there. Cleveland did pick up the $5.5 million option for catcher Roberto Perez, who's fit with the team remains in question. Right now, the Tribe has two defense-first catchers on the roster, and it's likely paying them a combined $8.5 million next year. Can't say that makes a ton of sense. So sure, Perez had his option picked up, but I wouldn't tell him to get comfortable. I like Perez. I do. Very few catchers in the majors pitch frame as well as he does, and he's still a threat to gun down would-be base runners. But per spot track... Austin Hedges is about to make an estimated $3 million this year, and it really doesn't make sense to pay a backup catcher that much money, especially if he doesn't bring anything different to the table. Hedges struggles to hit his weight, but he's one of the better defensive catchers in baseball. Looking at his 2019 numbers, he was the best pitch framer in the majors, and also he was in the 96th percentile when it comes to pop time to the unthrows to second base. Again, he doesn't hit well enough to make him a clear favorite to start, but I hate to remind you, Roberto Perez isn't exactly known for tearing the cover off the ball either. So you have two catchers who meet a similar profile, both great at defense, one costs less than the other, and that one is also three years younger. You see what what I'm getting here? So yeah, if I were Roberto Perez, I wouldn't assume a picked-up option means you can renew your rent. If you need more proof, just call Corey Kluber. 
other notes, it turns out Cleveland's hodgepodge outfield has finally been trimmed down a bit. Thank God. The Tribe non-tendered both Tyler Naquin and Delino DeShields Jr. last week. Weirdly, the only one of these moves that actually shocked me was ditching Delino. Not because he excelled this season. No, he, he, he did not. He was acquired to provide defense and speed on the base pass for Cleveland and proceeded to be a replacement-level defender who was picked off on two of his just five stolen base attempts. So yeah, not ideal. I just figured the Tribe would attempt to keep pushing this as a valued return of the Corey Kluber trade. Sure, Emmanuel Kloss remains the lone unknown of that deal, but to Shields, let's be honest. He just fits that Indian's mold of veteran with no real upside who continues getting debatably unearned playing time. So yeah, color me surprised. He's now a free agent. I can't say I'm shocked about Naquin's fate. Look, with him, you know what you have at this point. A decent player who can get hot at the plate but struggles to sustain it or stay healthy. He's been around for four years now, and the book on him just hasn't changed much in that time span. At a certain point, you had to make a call like this, and Cleveland decided to do it now. What it means for the outfield? Well, we still got a lot of names to sift through. Jordan Luplo, Josh Naylor, Oscar Mercado, Bradley Zimmer. Also, Daniel Johnson, and come midseason when his service time is officially manipulated, top prospect Nolan Jones. I know what I want to see. At least to start, Daniel Johnson getting the playing time that was reserved for Naquin, a platoon of Naylor and Luplo in left at least to start the year, and Oscar Mercado in center. I'm not sold on Mercado offensively or his ability to recreate the numbers he put up in 2019, but his defensive numbers are better than Zimmer to date. However, if the Tribe wants to scrap that plan and do... Oh, gosh. What's that thing you can do in the offseason every now and then? A few teams do it. Oh my god, it's going to bother me. Oh, wait, hang on. Spend money. Maybe give Kyle Schwarber's agent a call? Or Eddie Rosario? Huh? Huh? <laughs> no, that's that's not going to happen. The other route for outfield upgrade is, of course, bringing it back full circle, trading Lindor. In fact, per Terry Pluto, the Indians would really love to work a deal with Toronto in order to do just that. The Tribe apparently has eyes for outfielder Lourdes Gurriel Jr. out of Toronto, and I can see why. He's entering his year 27 season, so yay, prime. He's owed $3.5 million next year, $4.5 the year after that, and $5.4 million the year after that, which is pocket change, yes, even for Cleveland. More importantly, he's an outfielder who can, get this, hit a baseball. Here's a fun game. Go to Fangraphs and do a comparison chart of Guriel and anyone who logged outfield innings for the Tribe last year. Go ahead. When you do, you'll see that Guriel is the only one who has a torrid weighted on base average, has a weighted runs created plus above league average, 38% to be exact, the only one who displayed significant power, and the only one with a positive offensive runs above average. The bar wasn't even good, just above zero. His 882 OPS last year, that's over 200 points higher than the best of any Indians outfielder in 2019. So yeah, I'd take him. And that's also because, honestly, I'm a little antsy on Lindor's trade market in general. That's not to dog him, 
He had a rough go of it in 2020, but he's still arguably the best shortstop in baseball who instantly becomes the face of any franchise he joins. It's more because when you consider he only has one year of team control left, has intimated that he wants to test free agency, i.e. may not be willing to re-sign right away, and the entire league is licking its financial wounds after a season without ticket revenue, that's a bit of an unfavorable backdrop for a trade like this. Teams might be less willing to pony up big-name players or prospects, especially in exchange for someone who may not be willing to stick around, or at least need some convincing. Now, per Pluto, Lindor, quote, would consider a long-term deal with the Jays, and that's great. Because in my mind, unless there are at least two teams gunning for Lindor, both of which are convinced they can re-sign him, I'm just not sure Cleveland can land the blockbuster that a lot of the fans are dreaming of. We'll see. Never say never. This is the same front office that somehow made its roster better after trading Trevor Bauer. It's also the same front office that got minimal right now help in exchange for Mike Clevenger, so who knows. More on Cleveland's winter of infinite sadness in the coming weeks. All right, well, like I said, it's been a minute since I've had the chance to yell relentlessly into a microphone, so I have something for my vent of the week that's been building up for quite a while, and I I just got to get it off my chest. I do, because honestly, if I was told back after that stomping from Baltimore in September, if I was told, don't worry, the Browns are only going to lose two games from here on out. God, I'd be stoked. I would be stoked, thrilled even. Surely, surely that feeling would be mutual across the entire fan base. A group of fans so starved for real functional football that being six games above 500, absolutely that's reason to celebrate. Or is it? Based on who you ask, the answer is no, and has been for mostly this entire season. Now, it may quiet down a bit after Cleveland beat the Titans, but good God almighty, the amount of fans who have been whining and griping and bitching about a good football team. Unreal. Every single loss is proof that, yep, this team's a mirage. That's three, by the way, still just three losses. Every single win We've seen nine of those, and it's, well, the opponent wasn't that good, and Baker Mayfield didn't really play that great, and the defense is still a miss, and, well, hang on, they won the game, right? Yeah, but this team is still, it's just not a Super Bowl contender. Uh, Really? Are we really doing this? Are we poking holes in Cleveland's 9-3 record? Honestly, it's mind-numbing. It actually, it, it hurts my brain. To see a win and then go on Twitter and see reactions that, just going in blindly, you'd think they lost. Badly. Or see a loss. Again, there have only been three of them this year. And find a mood which makes you think they haven't won a game in two years. Which, hey, has happened before. Recently. I say that not to drag up bad memories, but to help color my argument here that, yes, The Browns have beaten bad teams. Yes, they've lost some stinkers, but they are 9-3. and They have a better record than all but three teams in the NFL. They are nearing a playoff spot. They are playing important football games in December. Stop bitching. 
And look, I'm not here to tell you this team's elite. I'm not here to tell you they can make a deep run into the playoffs. If I were a betting man, I wouldn't put money down on that. There are still holes in the defense. Baker Mayfield still does need to work on his consistency, and I'm wary about the sustainability of a Jarvis Landy Richard Higgins Donovan Peoples Jones receiving core. I'm not saying they're bad. They they might be great. I just don't know how long you can ride that trio. And yes, some of their wins have come with concerns. What I am saying is that this team has been an absolute tire fire for the better part of two decades. They've consistently teetered from bad to unwatchable for all but three seasons since 1999. And hey, one of those rare seasons is right freaking now. Three years ago, the Browns didn't win a damn game. Now they've won nine, and people in the fan base are still pissy. Oh, but they're only beating up on bad teams. Yeah, no kidding! That's what good teams do! Would you rather they lose? Honestly, to the, well, of course they beat the Bengals crowd, would you have preferred if Cincy won? To everyone poking holes in every single victory we've seen this year, would you rather have seen a loss? Because that's what we usually see quite frequently. Doesn't matter if the opponent is good or bad. Hell, last year, the Browns lost to Brandon Allen and Duck freaking Hodges. But no, 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 no. Please tell me why we should in fact be depressed that Cleveland only barely beat Mike Glennon this year. Again, I'm not saying these flaws on the team aren't there. This isn't a finished product, and I won't pretend it is. All I am saying is that since going 10-6 and in 2007, the Browns' best season win total is seven games, and it's happened twice. Otherwise, it's five, four, or if Hugh Jackson's involved, one if you're lucky. We are in no position to be taking wins for granted, much less so a damn winning season. Honestly, stop and go back to 2017 as a fan and have someone from the future swing by and say, hey there, fella, I I know your favorite team is a walking testament to complete incompetence, but don't you worry. In just three years, it'll be three weeks before Christmas, and the Browns, yes, these same Browns, they're going to be 9-3 and and one of the best teams in football. Would you really hear that and have an initial reaction of, Well, okay, but who'd they beat? I want to say no, but I really couldn't tell you. Just sit back and enjoy it, won't you? This team wasn't supposed to make a meteoric leap this year. Hell, there were more than a few people who figured they'd still struggle in 2020. New coach, Baker's fourth, new system, no real offseason to install it, holes across the defense, and yet nine and three. Why, then, is it so hard to just embrace that? You beat the teams that you're supposed to beat. That's it. That's the goal. So if they do that, why are we complaining? God, oh, and the people who are like, I mean, sure, they're six games above 500, but they'll just lose in the playoffs. The last Browns playoff game to take place was on January 5th, 2003, 17 freaking years ago, the year we were graced with the very first big hit from Nickelback. A lot of terrible things have happened since with both the Browns and that band, but no, 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 
let's just start griping about the hypothetical results of Cleveland's first playoff game since the start of the century. Unbelievable. Unfreaking believable. Just how many people that follow this team want to be miserable forever? I get it. You've been miserable for quite some time. That's what happens when you follow the Browns. But believe it or not, when they get good, you're supposed to be excited by that news. I don't know. I thought that was not a hot take. But here we are at 9-3 and three with a playoff berth right there for the taking. And everyone's, I guess, I mean, you know, I'd like to see them beat teams by triple digits at least. You know, like, I just, I'm concerned. Oh, my God. 0-16. Three years removed from an 0-16 season. One year removed from the most unlikable team in sports that I've ever seen in my life. The entitled, cocky for no reason, couldn't get prepared. Even in week 15, they couldn't line up properly. That was a year ago today. Freddie Kitchens. Yeah, we're, we're still learning how to line up properly. I know it's week 15, and that's a damning thing to say. But you know what? It's just something you learn with. I got to coach better if you don't wear an orange or brown. Do, 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 do. I, that, that was last year. How can you sit through that and then see the team drastically improve? Uh, Kevin Stefanski has already beaten Freddie Kitchen's total wins by three. And, uh, I just I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. Can't wait for the Browns to win the Super Bowl. And people are like, well, yeah, but Baker threw two incompletions. And, I mean, he had Higgins wide open on one of them. Ay, yay. That's it. I, uh, that's been welled up for a while, as you can tell. Uh, also, as we recorded, breaking news, Carlos Santana, he's staying in the Central, just, you know, with a different team. Uh, yeah, he signed with the Royals. Two years, $17 million. And I know people want to say, oh, Cleveland could have afforded that. They could have. They really could have. But I don't think it was going to happen in the first place. And I also think you can make an argument that maybe they shouldn't have pursued a reunion at all. I don't know. Just throwing that out there. Fodder for thought. Maybe we'll talk about it next week. That's going to do it. As I said, I had a lot to uncork this week. And I hope I got it all out. And I also hope I have enough room for next week's show. Because I'm going to get a couple more in before things busy up again. And, uh, you know, we'll go from there. I have been your host, Casey Drotter. You can follow me on Twitter at cdrotter19 or on Facebook at Casey Drotter Rant. That's all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the CLA Sports Talk podcast on Apple and Spotify. Again, I'll try to get a couple more in. If things are a little, you know, not chaotic in the first couple months of the year, maybe I'll toss a couple in then too. Until then, I will see you all next time. Wear a damn mask. And again, to hammer home, I have had COVID and it's awful. And we were as safe as possible and masked up and all of that, and it still caught us. So food for thought. Wear your damn mask. Go Dayton Flyers. <laughs>